You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. This episode is brought to you by the McKinsey Quarterly. Hi, I'm Alan Webb, Editor-in-Chief of the McKinsey Quarterly. I'm in Seattle today, and I'm delighted to be speaking with Angus Dawson, McKinsey Director and Leader of the firm's strategy practice based in Sydney, Australia, and Martin Hurt, a Taipei-based director of the firm who is responsible for the strategy practice's global knowledge development efforts. Angus and Martin, along with their colleague Jay Scanlon, were the co-authors of a recent McKinsey quarterly article on digital strategy, which lays out how to identify opportunities, respond to threats, and navigate disruptive change. Angus and Martin, thank you very much for spending some time with us today. Very happy to. Hi, Alan. It's a pleasure. So, uh, Angus and Martin, there is a lot of talk these days about the pace of industry disruption due to digitization. I guess my first question is whether you think some of that talk is overblown. In other words, how real do you think the risk of digital disruption is for most industries? Digital disruption at some level affects every industry, although to very different levels. Uh, some industries have uh, progressed very, very far in terms of digitization. Think about music and uh, music distribution. Some of them have barely been affected, some, uh, you know, for example, some basic materials, mining operations. And I would add that the fact that disruption is happening at different speeds for different industries shouldn't lead those industries where it's happening slower to assume it's not happening. Uh, and the worst thing would be to feel like it's not hitting uh, your industry and to wake up in five years and find out that actually the fundamentals have changed. Uh, the other thing is disruption is not all negative. For some players, disruption represents huge opportunity and upside, whereas for others, uh, you know, it's really about containing damage. You know, Angus, I think it's very interesting that you're talking about these different speeds at which disruption happens. Uh, when we reflect on uh, sort of a portfolio of clients that we have been serving on digital strategies over the last uh, few years, uh, I think it's even within a client's business that disruption happens at different speeds. There are parts of your product portfolio and your business portfolio that might barely be affected. Uh, take a retailer's grocery. Uh, business. There are other parts of the business that could be severely disrupted, take their consumer electronics business. So even within a business like retail, you have different parts of the product spectrum go at very different speeds. You both talked about speed uh, and you're also strategists. There's a sort of view that strategy takes time, it involves reflection. How much time is there to do real strategy these days given the pace of change that you're describing? And, and how do you strike the right balance between assessment and action? Alan, in, in periods of kind of greatest uncertainty and greatest change, it's more important than ever to have real strategy. Right? And that's not a plan and a set of priorities and initiatives. It's real strategy, which is based on an understanding of fundamentally how value is going to get created and what you need to do to win. And in, in this particular time, you may have lots of short-term changes, lots of different attackers you're worried about, new companies come on the radar literally every week that suddenly you've got to get across. It's more important than ever in that environment that you've taken the time to step back and understand what is fundamentally going on. But yes, time is tight and it's tough for executives to find space to do it. But we would encourage them to, uh, to actually find the time to do that. 
It's also interesting to see how people talk about digital strategy or strategy in the digital age. Um, they're always referring to examples like a Google, like an Amazon, like a Tencent. They're always referring to digital natives, attackers, who actually reshape entire industries or swaths of industries um, and refer to their strategies. We find these have relatively little relevance to the way an incumbent ought to think about their digital strategy, about being attacked by 50 different digital natives or startups. Uh, when you look at these shapers, these digital natives, very often they have a very broadly articulated vision. We want to be the platform of something or another. And they act very opportunistically to execute against that. So some of these take some of the Chinese major shapers like a Tencent, Alibaba. They do hundreds of acquisitions every year. Uh, not all of these acquisitions are part of a major you know, very thoughtful strategy. Many of these things are very opportunistic, just making sure that they stay ahead of these attackers and preempt them of actually building platforms on their own, but become part of their platform. This is very different uh, from how an incumbent ought to think about their strategy. Uh, there it is much more to the point that Angus made about being thoughtful about which of these threats out there are actually relevant to my business and how do I best respond? or how do I take advantage of some opportunities that disruptions open up for me? So your article presents a framework for, for doing some of that, for assessing opportunities and threats. Why do you think it's important for leaders to have a framework in their back pockets when they're thinking about the impact of digitization? I was having a conversation with a client um, a couple of weeks ago and they went through what they were describing as their digital strategy and having explored it a bit with them we ended up coming to an agreement that actually what they had wasn't a digital strategy it was a, a list of priorities for digitization uh, and so explicitly it was you know how are we going to you know reduce the cycle time in our end-to-end -end processes how are we going to you know improve the customer experience and build new apps and so forth so it was about how they digitize it was not actually the choices they were making about a big disruptive kind of economic force which is the technology that uh, and, and all the changes that are made possible by digital technologies and so when we stepped back and said well what's actually going on one of the conclusions they came to was actually there are parts of their business that they're fundamentally over investing in because digital forces are going to render the economic profit in that entire part of the value chain that they're participating in to actually be significantly less. The word strategy is used too loosely with digital to mean our priorities for digitization, not the choices we're going to make in terms of where we compete and how we compete in the face of a big disruptive force that we faced before with you know, you know, deregulation and electrification 100 years ago and uh, you know, the rise of consumer middle classes. And of course, the trend's been going on for a while. I wonder why it is that the conversation has turned to it so strongly over the last year or so. What, what's shifted in the environment in your mind to make disruptive change kind of the word of the hour? It's actually quite simple. Uh, if you look at all industries, and go back to the start of this discussion where we stated that different industries are at very different stages of digitization. 
uh, we're now at the stage uh, where a lot more industries are being affected, where digitization and digital disruptions affect a lot more industries. Initially, it was a few industries that were suitable for electronic distribution like books and music, but now a much broader set of industries is being affected. So I think it's a, a, a sheer, sheer breadth of impact of these disruptions that actually makes this a much more prominent topic today. Got it. So let's talk a little bit about the framework in your article. It rests on the core economic concepts of supply and demand. And I guess uh, one question is, isn't that kind of an old school way of understanding the digital world? Why do you think supply and demand are so relevant uh, for digital disruption? I guess it is a somewhat old school way of, uh, of thinking about it, but supply and demand are the fundamentals of, uh, of any market. Uh, and you know, the, ultimately the, the impact of, of digital forces uh, is, is to uh, reset some of our expectations around supply and demand and to open up new possibilities around the intersection of them in terms of the way markets, uh, markets move. And so when we look back at uh, those industries that have been hit with, with waves of disruption, we can boil it down to those effects that have been felt and supply and demand and the intersection of those. Uh, you know, this is still relatively early days. When we look back in 30 or 40 years, we'll see a, a several decade period of dramatic disruption. And in the early days of this, we actually think stepping back and having a fundamentals-based framework is the best way to, to help executive teams understand what's going on before all the, the data's in, frankly, in terms of the way the impact works. So we're trying to give people a, a, a fundamentals-based predictive framework rather than um, necessarily historical-based, you know, explaining in, uh, in hindsight how a car crash might have happened. There was a bank in London. Um, there's a steelmaker in India. Uh, there was a high-tech manufacturer in Taiwan. Uh, all of them struggled with the same question. They all looked at the emerging disruptive context in the industry, the possible angles of attack. Uh, they were overwhelmed with the sheer magnitude and number of possible angles. Uh, the bank in London, I think, counted 515 uh, fintech startups that could potentially be a threat. And they essentially threw up their hands and said, how, how do I think about this? How, how should I sort through this and figure out what my two, three, four priorities should be when I think about my strategy in the digital age? And when I think about how to respond to these threats. And uh, we realized that trying to predict who of these attackers would be successful, all of them being in and by themselves, attacking from a slightly different angle with slightly different chances of success and varying chances of success over time, it's a very high uncertainty space. So trying to actually look at what's happening and trying to predict the future turned out to be very hard. And we found that going back to the fundamentals of economics, trying to understand where is economic room to be attacked, where is your open flank, or where is a spearhead that you could thrust, was actually a much more useful way to approach the problem and simplify the problem and focus on the right priorities. In Australia, there was a period where it was a bit of a contest to um, kind of name the latest kind of potential cool Silicon Valley startup uh, and boards are making tours and management teams are making tours and you know, it literally became you know, a, a, a game of um, you know, one-upmanship to, to talk about all the different startups. Executives started getting frustrated with it and for those of us who lived through the, the first dot-com boom, 
and you look back at the the slides that we all produced of all the startups that were attacking various industries in those days, and you try and find out how many of them still exist, it's a pretty small number. So, you know, there, there was a futility to this whole game of kind of predict the next startup or to, to name the next disruptor. Uh, and we needed to take, in some ways, the conversation away from those people touring Silicon Valley and out of the, you know, the technology suite into uh, the, the language of, of all executives. And that is the language of the basics of the markets they're operating in, which is the essentials of what our customers want and how can we supply it. And I do find it very helpful, Angus, although I would say that the go and see tours to Silicon Valley serve a purpose. Uh, they don't clarify the strategic thinking, but they do help energize an organization to take these threats seriously and step out of sort of a state of denial. So a lot of, uh, a lot of people I talk to find this all very confusing because of the um, complexity of the external environment and its, its development, and therefore retreat to saying, well, we, we are who we are, we have a product, we have customers, uh, you know, let, let's just keep going for now, and do not step back to think fundamentally about where a threat could come from and be a real threat to them. And uh, with that, then I would say continue in a state of denial. Martin, you just uh, were speaking about awareness of threats, which gets to what I found a very interesting idea in your article, something you call collateral damage, where traditional companies, say camera makers, lose out to smartphone makers just because it becomes possible to put a camera in a phone. Um, how do you think a company can tell in advance uh, that it might become the collateral damage of a disruptor that, that wasn't even aiming at its business particularly? This gets to the very point why we actually structured the framework we did. A company can find out whether they're open to an attack like that by going in a very strategic way through their own economics of supply and demand. Which markets are they serving? What supply are they providing? And why are customers buying it? Where are costs in their business that could potentially be taken out by an attack like that? And as you go through the economics of your own business of your own market, uh, understanding the supply and the demand side in a, in a very structured way, you actually can identify these spaces. If you take some of the ones that you mentioned, like camera makers losing out to smartphone makers, it was a device that actually, because of the miniaturization of components, was able to integrate something that took a whole device in itself before. Uh, if you take the mapping industry, uh, the people who had used um, uh, printed maps, uh, they had a product that was essentially information and they were open to attack by somebody who would be able to take out the distribution cost and the production cost entirely by providing digital maps. So if you realize that you have a product that could be in that way digitized and severely disrupted, or if you have a product uh, that could be miniaturized and integrated into somebody else's platform, I think platform is the big notion here, then I think you're at risk. In some ways, that's, a, again, a fundamentals sort of supply and demand view of things. You know, on the, on the demand side, is it possible for someone to offer the value proposition that you currently offer to customers as part of something else that that customer already has? Right. And this is why, you know, the, the smartphone players, for example, getting into the payment space is potentially, you know, such a scare for financial institutions. Right. But on the other side of it, on the supply side, 
what are some of the barriers that might be insurmountable? Uh, and so regulation, for example, of deposit-taking institutions in most developed markets actually is going to make it very difficult for the technology players to really take out the banks. Uh, and if you can't get the deposits as a bank, then you can't lend money. Uh, and so the idea of kind of loans being swamped by by the technology players is still some way out. So I think understanding, again, those demand and supply fundamentals can help you assess it. Uh, now, what you can do about it, I mean, what, what, what could the digital camera players have done uh, in advance of the smartphone attack? Right, to be honest, part of what they should have done is get capital out of that part of the business because there was no way to stop the tsunami that hit them for mainstream cameras. So you're starting to talk about uh, resource reallocation, which has got to be one of the hardest problems in strategy in general, and especially when you've got shifts of this magnitude going on. What advice do you have for companies that feel like they're struggling uh, to move resources until it's too late to get out of things and into things uh, as the pace of change is so rapid? To start with, uh, it's stepping back and, and asking the question, does digital mean that there are some businesses we're in today that are less attractive in the future that we don't want to be in at all or as much? And are there some parts of our, uh, of our portfolio that actually have the potential to become a lot more attractive? So it's good old-fashioned corporate strategy-based resource allocation and portfolio review that has to be adapted to a, a, a new discontinuity. And then within that, it's how do I actually organize to make sure that the, the various things we need to do to respond to digital are actually happening. Uh, and that's actually, that's actually more challenging. And a lot, of, a lot of companies are spending a lot of money on efforts associated with digital without clear path to, to actual value creation. And so just you know, being able to say we've allocated X percent of our CapEx to digitization-related initiatives, I think is going to lead to a big hangover in a few years, rather than those initiatives that are actually very much anchored in uh, a, a confident strategy about what's really going on, again, with customers and how to make sure the value propositions evolve with customer expectations that are being lifted every day by digital natives. And on the supply side, to be able to get to a fundamentally lower cost base uh, or a fundamentally more advantaged supply chain to be able to actually compete. That's helpful. So, Martin, you spoke a moment ago about platforms and uh, about some of the big platform players like Amazon and Google. But I also, reading between the lines, think you were suggesting that that's not a play that's available uh, to a lot of people. So, so what is the platform lesson for the average company that's not likely to uh, have a, a massive scaling platform over over millions or billions of people? Alan, I think you're asking the question exactly in the right way. How likely is it? Um, everybody could actually build a hyperscaling platform, even incumbents. Think about Apple. Apple was a computer company three months away from bankruptcy in nine, 1998, 1999, uh, when Stephen Jobs stepped back in to save it. And today, it's one of the most valuable hyperscaling platforms in the world. Stephen Jobs clearly did not have that in mind when he stepped back in. In fact, when people asked him in 2000 what his, his strategy is, he said he's waiting for the next big thing. If he built this platform step by step, so even if your intention were to build one, uh, I think uh, you know, many of these journeys are quite circuitous and uh, fraught with, uh, with many lucky and unlucky accidents. The reality is that 
uh, out of all the companies who tried to go down that journey, only a very small handful, less than 10 in the world, were able to achieve that. So it's exactly as you ask, a matter of probability. If you're willing and your shareholders are willing to place a one in 100,000 or one in a 500,000 bet, uh, you know, be my guest, uh, the reality is that most companies will not be able to build a hyperscaling platform. However, these hyperscaling platforms do play a critical role in the growth of many businesses in the digital space. And what we see is that those who actually embrace them, embrace them for collaborating, for example, on advertising, on exploiting the analytical cap capabilities that these platform players have to better segment, target, and deliver their messages to their customers, uh, who use those platforms to streamline their supply chains, who use their platforms to out-compete competitors in terms of the speed they have in getting to the market or in getting their products and services to the market or in disrupting the cost of their product creation and service delivery. Terrific. So, guys, you suggest in your article that uh, established companies can become digital disruptors. We don't see a lot of them doing it, though. I wonder, I wonder why not, and if you've got any final tips for an established player hoping to disrupt in some space of its business. By far the hardest thing for an established company to do, first of all, is to disrupt itself. Uh, because the, the the economics are just so challenging, and all of the uh, you know corporate instincts uh, go against it. And so, you know, if you look at, for example, the media industry, all over the world, you know, the the local newspapers used to control classifieds, and you know there are really only one or two examples, like a Skipstead in in the Netherlands, that actually managed to make the leap and cannibalize itself and, dis and disrupt itself. So we should just acknowledge it's actually a very, very difficult and very courageous thing to do. Um, but if, if you actually have the clarity about uh, what's fundamentally going to happen to the industry uh, and the markers of that, then I, I think it can actually uh, give the courage to do it. Uh, in terms of, of incumbents or established players finding other sources of disruption, uh, I think that's more exciting, right? and that's that's something that, you know, for example, you know, payments players trying to get into loyalty platforms uh, with consumers, uh, you know, shopping malls trying to think about um, to what extent they can become digital intermediaries as well as physical intermediaries, uh, you know, telecom players thinking about what, what connectivity, uh, the role connectivity plays in different industries and the extent to which that can give them the chance to bring new disruptive models to things like uh, healthcare and transportation. To be also just uh, very practical, I think I see companies who successfully set off on a journey towards either facing a disruption aggressively or towards becoming a disruptor themselves by doing three things. One is setting appropriate targets. Being a disruptor to yourself or to others is a form of innovation. And the one thing that's foundational about innovation that we have learned is unless you set a target that's unachievable without innovation, people don't go for it. Innovations are fraught with risk. Disruptions are fraught with risk. Unless you have a target, a business target for the company and for individual businesses and managers that is actually stretching them beyond what their current business can possibly do, that they have to disrupt, they will not do it. Second, organization. 
unless the CEO elevates digital to his level, i.e. put a chief digital officer in charge of leading the transformation and elevating the leaders of digital businesses with the mission to either disrupt others or even themselves to direct reports to him or herself, it's not working. So need to have an organizational intervention to create these roles and give them the appropriate power and authority in the business. And thirdly, it's a strategy. Do not just think digitization, think digital strategy. How will the economics of my business change in the future? How can I change the economics of other businesses? And therefore, what should my strategy in the digital age be? That's a good practical note to end on, Angus and Martin. Thanks very much to both of you for your time today. And good luck as you continue applying the fundamentals to digital strategy. Thanks, Thank Alan. you. Thanks, Martin. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.